We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Good morning. Happy Monday and happy Thanksgiving week. Uh, This is a great week to pause and reflect upon God's goodness and all of the things and ways uh, that he has been faithful in in all of our lives. And regardless of what we have all endured over the last year and the last several years, especially uh, with 2020 not being that far uh, removed and that um, I, I was talking to some friends yesterday. I still can't believe that we all went through all of the crazy shutdowns and uh, the, the world just basically stopped all of that. And um, so many losses, um, whether it was of life or of jobs and, and just all the things that we go through in daily life, um, we still can point as Christians to the faithfulness of God and know that no matter what happens here on earth, we have our hope in eternity because we have salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is always something to be thankful for. I know that this week for uh, some it can be painful, and, and you may not be able to spend uh, it for whatever reason with friends and family, but know that God is always there. He is not silent. Um, he is a loving, gracious, and faithful God, and we can always have joy in the Lord in that and be thankful regardless of our circumstances. And the Bible calls us to give thanks in all of our circumstances and um, to pray first with thanksgiving and with joy and then let our requests be made known to the Lord. And I would encourage you this week as you, uh, whether you do daily devotions in the morning or whether you have a quiet time sometime in the afternoon or evening, uh, to pause and first give thanks and consider everything that the Lord has done and then ask him uh, for another good year of of great blessings. And I'm so blessed to be with my family this week. And uh, my little brother who goes to Liberty University, he's a senior, he's going to be graduating already. It's it's amazing. Uh, in May, so we're all uh, gathered at my parents' house this week, including Todd and Copper, my little puppies. And so they are just loving um, going out and the giant backyard at, at uh, my parents and running around. So uh, we're, we're all gathered and uh, it's it's going to be a great week. And I'm always very grateful for time with family. And I was speaking to my grandmother yesterday and um, it's just, it's always uh, a good time to pause and reflect um, on your family as well and those that God has given you in your life and whether um, it's it's biological family or it's the friends that God have, has placed in your life that become family. Uh, that ultimately is a wonderful thing that we can give thanks for. So we'll continue to talk about Thanksgiving this week. Um, but now to some, you know, some things that maybe we can give thanks for. Um, I'm personally uh, 
kind of given thanks for this one that uh, George Santos in Congress, who is a Republican, announced he will not seek re-election to the House next year. How is that for a transition? Wow. Um, but, but I am actually giving thanks for that one. Um, he has just been a, a remarkably bad uh, presence, in my opinion, in the U.S. Congress. And this follows the Ethics Committee um, release of a long-awaited report last week on Thursday, which concluded that, quote, there is substantial evidence that the New York congressman used campaign funds for personal purposes. And so whether or not Santos is actually expelled before uh, he can seek re-election is now up to uh, the United States House, and that looks like it is more and more a possibility even this morning. Um, A few members in Washington saying that they will seek uh, to expel George Santos. And this, of course, is a seat in New York that Republicans flipped uh, in the last midterm election with Santos's uh, election. And so it was previously Democrat. So where does that go from here? Joining me now is our good friend, who I'm very thankful for, uh, Pedro Gonzalez. He is a writer, and you can read him on, on uh, Substack, readcontra.com. So Pedro, Uh, Santos has been just, in my opinion, a complete disaster in Congress for so many reasons. So um, do we think better to expel him and have that as more of a precedent or just kind of let his term play out and he's not now running for re-election? Well, Jenna, thanks for having me. Um, Well, I think there's there's, um, something important here, which is that Initially, even members who were reluctant to discuss expulsion over basically, you know, are we really going to do this over a few nasty media reports, right? Well, they've since changed their mind because the the report that's come out on Santos has actually found, you know, that he's violated House rules. He's guilty of pervasive fraud. So now there actually is grounds for doing that. But I think that issue of whether or not you know we should or should not support it is i guess what i'm at is i don't really care uh in the sense of um i I don't think people should be going to bat for him if he is uh if he is expelled because that was i mean initially when the stuff was happening and people were looking into him there was this kind of rush to defend santos and i i never joined it i never understood it basically the, the idea was you know, that, that we, we have to stand by our own because, first of all, everyone's corrupt. But that's not a very good argument, is it? Everyone's corrupt, so we shouldn't hold anyone accountable. <laughs> but that, that argument kind of falls apart. Uh, but the other thing was, and I think this is actually more of the argument that I heard, was that he might be corrupt, but he's, he, he fights. He's on our side. Is he? Does he? I don't really see a whole lot of constructive anything. It's just the show. It's just this obnoxious political psychodrama where we get, you know, headlines. And and I think Santos, by the way, loves this. You know, he, he loves being the guy that's surrounded by reporters and gets kind of like a, a Scarface picture, you know, like that goes viral. And that's actually what you're getting. You're not actually getting anything constructive, anything that advances an agenda. You're just getting a guy who makes politics into more of a freak show than it already is in exchange for nothing else your money i guess that that's really it like you're you're paying for the show and so that's why i i you know personally i hope he does actually get expelled um but if if he doesn't 
that's too bad. But if he resigns, great. Um, but what I will absolutely not do is defend him. And it's bizarre to me that anybody would at this point. Yeah, and, and Pedro, I think that's really well said because often in our uh, blue versus red kind of world of politics, we tend to gravitate toward defending those in our own party, just like you know the Democrats do that, the Republicans do that. And so the standard should be the truth. The standard should be the law. The standard should be uh, that you know no one is is above the law, and and certainly um, the government can be weaponized, and, and we've seen that over the course of the last several years. And and all of that to say that we need to have an objective standard. This is why the founders um, implemented the U.S. Constitution. This is why we have law and order in a moral and upright society. And so for those who are defending Santos simply because he is a Republican and we need to defend our own, if this was going on and this came out and Santos was a Democrat, those very same people would be calling for his expulsion saying, how could he possibly, this is a reflection on the entire party, totally up in arms about it. And yeah. And, and that kind of hypocrisy is where I get frustrated in watching some of the Washington politics because it does seem like there's no objective standard. It just depends whether you're blue or red. And that's not the standard that conservatives and particularly Christians should be implementing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's totally correct. And again, this idea of Machiavellian politics, which I'm not honestly completely opposed to, uh, basically the idea of actually just winning for a change um, and kind of learning to play the game. But again, this this is all a joke because we don't actually do that. Santos doesn't do that. He, he He's actually playing a different game, which is you know taking advantage of your voters. And, and you notice this, whenever he was actually caught up in a controversy, he would just flat out lie. You know, he'd say the Chinese Communist Party was behind you know, behind all these allegations that he had been guilty of fraud and, and stuff like that. It's like, no, that's, that's not true. And, and the fact that you're trying to convince people of these things that are just patently false just, just tells me you're actually a very bad person because you're taking advantage of people who trust you to tell them the truth and you're lying to them about yourself. So that mm. kind of tells me everything I need to know about you. Uh, yeah, it, and, and, and that type of thing, you know, if if that it, that's true, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and, and let's be honest, I mean, there are not great people and there is corruption on both sides, and we should not be yeah. so quick to defend people just based on whether they have an R or a D after their name. Right. And so um, so Axios yeah. has a really good um, piece, actually, that, and I rarely say that, but they do, um, ju- that's just informational of who isn't running for re-election in the House and Senate in 2024. And um, as of this piece, it was 29 House members, now 30 with Santos, um, have said that they will not run for other offices or they will retire, and seven senators are not seeking re-election in 2024. Um, so mm-hmm. how important is this next election in terms of the the down ticket and where are we at with the composition of the house now um more democrats than republicans so far are not seeking re-election yeah i i couldn't give you a prediction or tell you what i think is going to happen honestly because everything feels like in the air right now i think we're living through like a a bizarre time of great upheavals and it's just i mean 
not just in terms of, of you know elections, but also culturally. And I, I mean, I've never actually been more disoriented about what the future could look like than I am today <laughs> in, in my entire life, which uh, maybe that tells you uh, that my experience is, is limited based on my age or something. But it's just it, every the, our politics feels like they're going insane. And it it feels like winning elections doesn't necessarily translate into actually getting anything done anymore. And I mean, I'm very kind of down on the state of the GOP. Um, it's just a hard time. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't give you a better answer, but that's actually, I mean, this is actually That's honest. actually very honest, though. Yeah, that's actually very honest. And, and, and I feel like all of our, you know, kind of predictive indicators that maybe we all used in politics, especially pre-2016, um, have gone out the window. I mean, I, I will always remember on election night of 2016 watching the the 98 percent for Hillary Clinton news ticker from The New York Times go all the way down slowly over the course of the night. And everybody <laughs> was flabbergasted, right, that, that Donald Trump actually won. And I think yeah. from that moment... We put less weight in the polls. We put less weight in some of the the talking heads. And so I think that's actually a very honest answer, Pedro Gonzalez, that um, not only have we seen how much mainstream media has has manipulated things, like propping up Nikki Haley, for example, but also um, just how different voters approach um, issues and how diverse the parties truly are. So, you know, what do you think, though, is going to be one of the main voting issues in the last minute or so I have with you? In terms of 2024 down ticket, I mean, obviously just keeping majorities um, or flipping majorities in the House and Senate are going to be priorities for both parties. Well, I will say that the, the issue that is most disorienting for me is is foreign policy. It, it, like, this is such a strange time in, in terms of that because you're seeing, like, younger generations that are more ambivalent, in particular towards, like, Israel and, and, and foreign policy and interventionism and things like that. It's like everyone's trying to figure out what exactly is going on. It seems like the, the Democratic Party is, at least like the base, is overwhelmingly unhappy with how Joe Biden is handling it. In other words, they seem to think that he's too pro-Israel. It, it's just that actually seems to be kind of a wedge issue that everyone's trying to understand because it reflects an electorate that is changing. And it, it also reflects the uh, generational differences that, you know, initially... I saw pollsters saying, like, well, in a year, this stuff isn't going to matter, like what's happening in the Middle East. But now it actually seems like it will matter. And we're all trying to figure out, you know, how is that going to affect the Democratic Party's chances next year? Because, again, you know, the squad actually seems to be closer to what the Democratic base thinks than Biden and and sort of the old guard of the Democratic Party. And, again, on on the GOP, you're, you're kind of also seeing this weird thing play out where people are trying to figure out, you know, where are Republicans on foreign policy? Decisions. Absolutely. Right. And we got to leave it there. Pedro Gonzalez, follow him on X. And we'll be right back with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning. According to a recent study of hundreds of post-abortive women, 60% of women reported that they would have preferred to give birth if they had received more support from others or had more financial security. And that's where preborn steps in. 
Preborn is there for women in their darkest hour, deciding between the life and death of their precious child. You see, the reality is women are being pressured to make this fatal decision and are being told that their babies are just clumps of cells. Preborn welcomes women with God's love and introduces them to the beautiful life growing inside of them, which doubles their baby's chance at life. When you support preborn, you are not only supporting women, you empower them. Your donation of $28 will help a woman make a choice that she won't have to regret for the rest of her life and gives her the ultimate blessing, life. Your love can save a life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And you may have heard about central bank digital currency. And if you haven't, this has become uh, one of the most concerning issues, in my opinion, for how the globalist left and uh, those who would try to control the world are attempting uh, to do so, which is through a central bank digital currency. And the head of the IMF, or the International Monetary Fund, said last week that the globalist organization is, quote, working a global CBD platform that will be mandatory for all citizens of the world. So this is a way basically for the government and however we define government, maybe a one world government or maybe a globalist government will attempt to control your money and attempt to control banking and attempt to control what you can and can't spend your money on. So if we thought that uh, COVID, for example, was bad in terms of how the Biden administration attempted to compel vaccine mandates and say you can't go to work, you can't, you'll lose your job, you can't uh, participate in civil society in any way unless you are vaccinated. Uh, Well, this would be a way to say that you can't buy or sell unless you use a central bank digital currency that the government can track you and that they can determine what you spend uh, your money on, which is very concerning. And this is why uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, out of my now home state of Florida, has banned uh, central bank digital currency as uh, the the uh, transactional uh, value that you cannot you cannot use that in the state of Florida under their uniform commercial code. And this is yet another way that the citizens of Florida are protected and frankly is is one of many, but one of the top key reasons. In fact, I would put it in the top 10 of why I choose uh, and chose to move to Florida was because um, in the state of Florida now, the globalists will not take over in terms of a central bank digital currency. And this is something that our federal government and certainly every good governor needs to be aware of and needs to legislate on so that we don't find ourselves in another compulsory situation. So uh, joining me now to talk about this and more is our good friend, Tho Bishop, who is with the Mises Institute and um, just a really great commentator on economics. So so um, talk first about what actually is central bank digital currency, what people need to be aware of, and why this is such a looming threat for our freedom. Yes, good morning. Good morning, Jenna. Um, yes, no, this is one of the most important issues out there. Um, this is something that has been whispered about within IMF um, central bank circles for close to a decade now. There has been a, a creeping war on cash um that 
started off by you know, trying to get people to, to you know, use more, you know, it become entirely reliant upon debit cards and credit cards and Venmo and transitions like that, um, getting people to remove cash from their day-to-day lives. Um, certain countries like Sweden try to put in place bans um, within their own countries, and they, they had some issues there. And, of course, the people that are hurt the most are you know, the, the people that don't trust banks, people that um, you know, work paycheck to paycheck, um, you know, people in the service industry in particular. So there's been this creeping agenda for a while now um, the, central, the, the digital currency aspect is something where these central banks have been trying to learn from the popularity of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, even though these are, are completely different products. Uh, Bitcoin's value is that it's, it's deep political in nature. Um, there might be other things that may not make it a great great asset for, for certain people, but you know it's a completely depoliticized currency where a central bank digital currency, um, it, it gives an unprecedented power over the population. I mean, money itself is the, the foundation of an economy. A, it is what allows for the division of labor in the first place, right? It is such a core element in the ability to, to program central bank digital currency so that if you do not spend all of your money by a certain period, it can turn off. Um, that's a kind of a tool that central banks have been looking for to try to, you know, be able to control and drive spending when they want it to try to um, track all this sort of uh, uh, track your transactions to know everything that you're doing. And this is a, a I mean, it's really a full frontier of, of progressive technocratic tyranny um, out there. And it's, it's been very encouraging to see, I think, broad awareness of just how great of a threat there is. And what we need to be aware of is that the two things they're going to try to use to sell this is, one, trying to promote it to the, to the public using like a, a UBI, similar to the way that we saw direct payments during COVID, right? Like, oh, well, you, this, this is going to be a program where you can get $1,000 a month if only you accept it through central bank digital currency, trying to bribe people away from their sovereignty in the financial areas. And the other one is going to be that we need this to stop bad people from doing things, right? This is the way that they helped weaponize the banking system after 9-11 with kind of know your lender laws. Um, you know, they've, they're, they're going to try to use the example of bad people to justify the need to have this overwhelming surveillance state. So those are the two ways that I think that we could see this try to be sold um, to try to get the people on board. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, the progressive left is is almost never just forthright with their agenda to uh, to infringe on freedom and liberty. They do try to sell this as like the COVID vaccine of saying, you know, this will protect you and, you know, you're going to kill your grandma unless you take this. And it was a humanitarian sort of guise. And this will, of course, uh, come similarly in that way. And it's interesting to me, um, though, Bishop, that um, that that you rightly say that a lot of people are comparing a CBDC to cryptocurrency um, just because it's digital. But um, but that couldn't be further from the truth because uh, because cryptocurrency is decentralized. Where literally central bank is centralized and it's it's controlled by uh, those in in power. And it's an attempt to be able to look into your bank account to actually stop you from spending and stop your freedom and liberty. And nobody really makes that same comparison when we look at we already have digital. Cur- Currency in, in the sense that we have, you know, lines of credit. We have, um, you know, a, a lot of other things that the transactions are done digitally rather than with hard 
uh, cash and and coin. And so, um, so I think that that's that that's just kind of a misnomer that people need to recognize that this poses such a great threat. Um, but why hasn't Congress really? articulated this as one of a of their main priorities in terms of ensuring that the United States could never accept as a as a transactional method under the Uniform Commercial Code a, a CBDC. Well, the problem is I think a large percentage of Congress actively wants this. Um, so that's 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 an under, underlying thing. There's there's another dynamic where technically um, any any Fed implementation of this, in theory, would require congressional authorization based off the kind of the current rules the Fed operates. Of course, what we know is that unprecedented actions happen all the time. Um, you know, again, if, if they utilize a time of emergency to put this in place, then authorization and, and following the Constitution goes out the window. And so you have some that they do not see this as a looming threat, and they do not prioritize it because there is some statutory protections there. On the other side, again, someone like Elizabeth Warren would absolutely like, absolutely love this. Um, but it's, it's also worth pointing out to, to your audience that a lot of the concerns that we have about a central bank digital currency in a smaller form already exists within the current banking system. Like, that's one of the biggest stories the last you know, 25, 30 years is the extent to which the, the dollar the has been weaponized. It's, it's been weaponized in, in foreign policy, but also domestic policy, where the extent to which banks have been forced to become sort of reporting agencies by the feds. Again, you know, know your lender laws, these things. We saw it with uh, the way that Bank of America reported on January 6th. Uh, if people that weren't well, even in the capital, but, but customers that were at January 6th back in 2021 um, we've seen it with reporting of gun purchases and the like. The, the, the monetary system, the banking system within this country the last several years has been, several decades, have been deliberately uh, become a, an extension of the state. And this is why understanding this money monetary issue, so I was a big Ron Paul fan back in the day, is understanding the extent to which when they, they completely politicize the dollar by remo- going away from gold, that's a big dynamic in the inflation issues that we have right now. Um, this growing federal leviathan and regulations. This has this really getting turned our banks to their top priority being submission to D.C., not serving our, our uh, not serving their customers. And the central bank digital currency is the next extension to it. Um, and it, what's, what's interesting is that there was actually an attempt during the, the Trump administration to put in place an economist who very much favored this and specifically um, helped stop that nomination. But this is something that's been building for a period of time right now. So this is not something like, oh, what's happening in Europe? Oh, this is something boring that you know, economists are talking about. This is something that's been going on in this country, steps being made for a very long time. And so this, this, compla- or this complacency that too many Republicans have on this issue, like they do on so many others, um, is, is something that really is a danger because the people, at, the people that want this are not being complacent. Yeah, very well said, uh, Tho Bishop from the Mises Institute, and um, and you're absolutely right with those examples of how the banking industry has already become weaponized against what should be their own customers and serving a government interest instead. And we saw this. Um, you mentioned the 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 bank reporting on things like uh, gun purchases, for example, and you know the privacy 
it just isn't there anymore. And that's what needs to be fixed legislatively. And when we look at somebody like Mike Lindell, for example, that just for his own political viewpoints, I mean, agree with him or not, he has a right to have a bank and to spend his money and to not be canceled from um, his Minnesota-based bank just for his political viewpoints and what he's posting on social media. I mean, it's it's yet another example of how the government is trying to control the actions of conservatives or anyone that they don't prefer prefer whatever the narrative is that they don't prefer instead of recognizing that we should have freedom and liberty to buy and sell. I mean, the free alienability of property and the free exchange of um, of property and, and purchase and selling. I mean, that was a huge issue to the founders, specifically Thomas Jefferson. I mean, this is why our rights are termed in the Declaration of Independence as unalienable. That literally means they cannot, our rights cannot be alienated from us as much as property and real property uh, can and should be because we own it and ownership and private property is essential to ordered liberty and that foundation. So um, so what should Republicans be doing? Um, should it mirror something on a state level like what Governor Ron DeSantis has done through the Florida legislature? Um, I love that idea. I think more Republican governors um, should be implementing that. Or is it better to have something from Congress that would affect America nationally? Ultimately, I think that ultimately, I think this is something that um, if the national government really puts its weight behind it, I'd be interested to see the way that some of these state restrictions play out in, in practice. Um, I, I think that it is a positive step for. I mean, every red state should be should be doing this. I, I think having a the, the, the more states that push back on this, I think the stronger that any of those state-based citadels will be. Uh, ultimately, though, this is going to become – ultimately, this country necessarily needs a complete revaluation of the way that we conduct on monetary policy, by extension, um, you know, tools like central bank digital currencies. I mean, the, the inflationary issues that we have in this country um, are you – know, we, we are, are, that, that's what's destroying the livelihoods of working-class Americans. Um, we need a Federal Reserve that will reverse its – ideological capture from these you know, technocrats that over um, you know that have granted themselves so much influence and power over the economy and replace it with what the founders wanted, um, which is a depoliticized currency, a currency that cannot be manipulated by these types of people, whether that's with gold, whether that's with other other you know differences of rules, things like that, we can have an open conversation for it. But you know, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way that America has conducted its monetary policy for a very long time now. It's average Americans that are paying the price, and they, they pay it not simply by the inflationary consequences of their policies. But they pay for it in the cost of civil liberties. They pay for it in the cost of, again, I think, generational decline, um, that a short-term culture that we've cultivated has created. So this is something that I think across the board we need to be reevaluating and taking seriously these issues of money and banking. Yeah, really well said. Uh, Tho Bishop, who is a content director at uh, the Mises Institute. And, um, you know, I, I do think that as more states, if they do go the way of Florida and and try to say, you know, the central bank digital currency will not be used under our uniform commercial code. Um, and then nationally, Congress does approve something like central bank digital currency. It'll be interesting to see how that would play out in the courts, um, particularly with the coining of money being a specific um, subject matter matter that's given to Congress. But, um, but how exactly that plays out 
um, will be interesting and why we need originalists and conservative judges who see these types of issues, can evaluate them constitutionally. And, you know, you also mentioned, though, um, how getting away from the gold standard and how the Fed has operated has has been a huge impact in our liberty. We only have about two minutes left, but um, how how can we get back to um, maybe a less you know risky version of, of some of this that we're just seeing going so globalist. Well, it, it's it's not that difficult um, in in the grand. It, what it requires is an ideological shift, and we actually saw this play out with Argentina yesterday with the election of Javier Milei. Is that what you had as an economic situation there that became so bad that you had the elevation of a Austrian economist, someone who is a fan of the Mises Institute work of our work. Um, and who wants to put in place, you know, he, he's talked about um, bringing down the Argentinian central bank that has become manipulative, that has inflated away their currency, and replace it with a uh, monetary freedom. So you're going to have people that better use the dollar now, because for all the problems the dollar has, it's a lot better than the Argentinian peso. People are going to be able to use Bitcoin. People are going to be able to use gold. They're not going to have taxes on these sort of things. And so simply eliminating the tax, the capital gains tax, on cold cryptocurrency, things like that, so that if you're saving in these assets and the value goes up, you're not being taxed on it. That's the simplest way possible. It doesn't require abolishing the Fed. It doesn't require um, anything else. It simply allows a lifeboat so that Americans that have inflationary concerns that want to use Bitcoin, gold, silver, whatever you want, um, that you're not taxed for your choice of not putting all your faith in the dollar. That's what it requires. And, and that makes a lot of sense. And though, Bishop, really appreciate your commentary. And this is why um, you're one of my favorite people to follow on X. Everyone should follow at Tho, T-H-O, Bishop on social media. He's the content director at the Mises Institute. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And in during this week of Thanksgiving, we do need to be thankful for those who will literally put their lives on the line for the truth of the gospel of Christ. And I would ask all of our AFR family to be praying for a pastor out of Glendale, Arizona. He is a church leader that was shot in the head while preaching at a Glendale street corner. Um, he was known for being a sidewalk pastor and was the victim of 
a drive-by shooting. And so according to uh, CBS in Glendale, Arizona, uh, that the uh, the 26 year old pastor Hans Schmidt, it's his name. He's a husband and father of two, remains in critical condition, and officers are asking for the public's help in finding who is responsible. Uh, friends say that this happened as the former military combat medic was standing with a megaphone on the street corner preaching the gospel to people passing by, something he has done countless times before. And this time, someone pulled out a gun. And shot him. So he has, at least as of this point, um, as far as we we know and what has been reported, um, has survived. But he is in critical condition, and um, of course, this is just a terrible, terrible uh, tragedy. And it's something that, um, of course, whoever is responsible should face justice for this. And uh, we should be praying for Hans Schmidt and his family during this week of Thanksgiving. I mean, these are people who are literally. Um, potentially martyrs for the cause of Christ and are still willing to go out and teach. And what, where have we gotten to in the United States of America when things like this happen and uh, pastors are targeted simply for preaching on the sidewalk? So uh, please be praying for that. And um, as we learn more, I'll continue to uh, update you. So let's turn to the tragedy that is going on in Israel. And our good friend uh, Ron Coleman joins now. And uh, Ron, who is the host of the Coleman Nation podcast and um, is a Jew and we are so uh, grateful for your time, Ron, and um, my my condolences and prayers for Israel and um, for everyone who has been affected by this. Thank you so much for joining. And um, where are we at in terms of um, Israel and the Hamas conflict? Good morning, Jenna, and thank you, as usual, for, for having me on. It's a real pleasure. I'm, I'm just a little bit taken aback by that story that you just told me about the, the preacher who was, who was just arbitrarily... I, I, probably not arbitrarily. It sounds like a hate crime. You know, there are people mm-hmm. who are who really can't stand to hear things that make them realize that they have to change their lives, uh, and th- that that's that's how we see anti-Semitism really, because the Jewish people are, at, you know, and, and this is this is at the heart of the of the Israeli of, of the conflict in, in the Middle East. Um, Things so have true. definitely not gone well for Hamas, and one of, one of the fascinating things that has come out in the last day or so is that Israel has uh, taken over the Shefa, the Shefa Hospital, uh, which in fact has long been understood as being essentially a cover, not a cover, it's a real hospital, but it was also integrated with the Hamas military headquarters and was in fact, what, what they have uncovered not only proof of that, but video footage, to use the old-fashioned expression, demonstrating that the hostages that were taken from Israel uh, to the Gaza Strip were at least first brought to this hospital, and that everyone in that hospital knew it. They had to know it. That's how the hospital operates. It's been operating that way for years. And so not only did the people working at the hospital, but all the journalists who swore up and down that this couldn't have been, they were lying to us. 
Well, and it's just another example, Ron Coleman, of how um, the media cannot be trusted and we need to wait until the facts come out and hopefully they do come out before uh, we rush to judgment and certainly before foreign policy is is based on those kinds of things. And so, you know, as, as someone who's obviously following this very closely, um, where do you go for news and information and, and the truth of what's going on? I mean, is it, is it more private sources or where can people um, turn other than mainstream media to actually get the truth that is not being perpetuated by some of these anti-Semitic outlets? Well, I, I, would, I think it's fair to say that I've, I've stopped relying on mainstream news for pretty much anything. I guess the sports scores are pretty accurate. But uh, <laughs> I get my news from Twitter, uh, and, it, and it's not because I only follow people who say what I want to hear. I follow a, a, a wide range of opinions, and I also know that there are many reports that are going to find their way into my timeline uh, that I can rely on because people that I follow have seen fit to, you know, to, to, to share them with me. That's what I rely on. There's no particular, I mean, I, there are certain sources, certainly Times of Israel is, 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 is a, a very reliable Middle East source. I follow the Israeli ministry, I'm sorry, the, the State of Israel um, X account as well. Um, and, you know, I've got many friends, a good at Israel of America, which is a, 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 an Orthodox Jewish uh, act, um, activist and advocacy uh, organization that I am, have been involved in for, for decades, uh, ha- has an account on Twitter, where, which is where I go to find my sort of uh, theological center on these issues. Yeah, and and um, and and I think that following the X accounts and and some of that, it's amazing how social media has um, really opened the door for people to. I mean, certainly, you know, post some things that end up being debunked, but actually get around some of um, the narratives that are perpetuated by some of the mainstream media outlets that we wouldn't have as immediate and. Uh, worldwide, I mean, global access to. And um, that actually gets into another story that I wanted to ask you about, Ron Coleman, since um, you're an attorney as well. You're part of the Dillon Law Group. Um, and, and this was really fascinating to me that uh, X will be filing a lawsuit against Media Matters after a hit piece led advertisers to desert the platform. According to National Review, um, Elon Musk announced on X that he will file a, quote, thermonuclear lawsuit. Um, don't know if that'll be through SpaceX or what, but, you know, I mean, when he says thermonuclear, <laughs> you can probably guess that, that he means something by that. Um, but he said on Monday, so uh, today, against Media Matters for America after one of its reports prompted multiple corporations to pull their advertising from the billionaire's rebranded social media platform, accusing him of being anti-Semitic and that his brands were running alongside white nationalist and pro-Nazi uh, content. This, of course, was um, was completely false. And so does this type of lawsuit in terms of, um, you know, whether he files it as as, um, as, as a defamatory or, you know, libel uh, sort of suit, have a likelihood of success? No, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that it, that it shouldn't. But as it stands now, defamation law, and whether you couch it as defamation or tortious interference with contract or tortious interference with prospective economic advantage, I, I've been involved in a lot of these cases, and they've not, they're not always dismissed. But it's really, really difficult to get a, a judge in the United States to accept the premise that a, calling someone 
or calling a statement anti-Semitic or racist is something other than an opinion. And it's a little bit of a far-fetched concept. I mean, there are many times when it is opinion, but on the other, on the other hand, there are times when it's simply not an opinion, when you can objectively say black isn't white. And uh, nonetheless, judges find it very easy to dismiss cases like this and not have to deal with difficult and awkward issues. So I think it is not likely to succeed. On the other hand, that's a very different thing from saying that he should not file the suit. Um, I don't think I don't believe that it would be that it is an ethical violation or a violation of federal rule, federal procedure, Rule 11. I suppose that I assume that the, the claim would be brought in federal court under diversity, but every state has the same rule. Basically, you can't file a frivolous lawsuit. Um, it's not frivolous. It, it's a claim that ought to be recognized, but I just uh, unless and until something changes. Um, probably at the Supreme Court level, I don't think cases like this are, are going to succeed. That, that's different from saying, again, that he shouldn't try. He needs to send a message that there is going to be a cost to these activist organizations. And if there's, and if there's any chance whatsoever that his could be the, the case that breaks through, then all power to him. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's really wise analysis, uh, Ron Coleman. And you have uh, litigated a lot of these cases. Your firm has represented, for example, uh, Project Veritas and um, you know, and James O'Keefe right. when he was formerly there, and you know some of these others that um, that have been uh, defamed. And in terms of, of bringing some of these suits against, like the New York Times and others, um, that have a really good factual basis for that claim. And so, with the state of the law currently um, in defamation law, we, and we look back even you know to to some of President Trump's lawsuits that. Did didn't succeed against right. some of these outlets that um, that, that clearly are, are false, but it does legally fall into the category of opinion as far as the law is concerned. Um, does this just encourage these outlets like Media Matters to go and post this kind of content that technically under the law may be opinion, but has now led to all of these advertisers giving them a cover to basically um, to, to to then leave advertising on X and effectively hurt Musk's bottom line. I mean, what is the legal solution then? Or should it be? The legal solution, I think, again, is going to have to be the Supreme Court revisiting. Well, I mean, there are two issues. One is that, I, you know, Times versus Sullivan, everyone, I think, not everyone, but many, many people agree that it, it, it is a decision that should be revisited. Hey, the standard for defamation, it is necessary to protect free speech against defamation law, uh, against the abuse of defamation law, and that's fine. Uh, but there's also, again, that, that issue of, and I think this is just a series of bad decisions that I think has never actually been addressed at the Supreme Court level. It is not opinion to call someone something that he's not and there is a point at which it is falsifiable and that, that's the test is it a, can, can we say that someone cannot you know can, can cannot be shown can be shown to not be x or to not be y judges don't want to wrestle with this and i think the problem jenna is is as much to do with this with a sort of a social phenomenon in the judiciary which is right now frankly a gigantic article three train wreck uh, as much as a constitutional or a, strictly speaking, a legal problem.
Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And, and that was very well said, uh, Ron Coleman. And I agree with you that the New York Times versus Sullivan standard does need to be revisited. And it makes sense to say, you know, people are entitled to their opinions. And if you, um, you know, if you have, for example, an opinion that Joe Biden is the worst president ever, okay, well, that's, you know, by what standard and that's someone's opinion. And of course, you're allowed to, to publish that without, um, without ramifications or, or defamation. Um, but when you get into some of these things, that are specific character attacks and you're saying that certain statements are anti-Semitic, shouldn't there be a standard by which to say that 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 is either provably true or false? It's not just someone's opinion. And, And it does, though, get into a very tricky category because we don't want to then have the law say that people have to be so careful about their opinions that we end up infringing on freedom of speech and of the press because we know that obviously the left is going to manipulate whatever standard um, is ultimately imposed by the court if they decide to revisit New York Times versus Sullivan. I, that's right. It is a difficult it is a difficult call, but that's what judges are paid to do to make difficult calls. And it's and it's calls that have to be made now because uh, accusing someone of racism or anti-Semitism or any of the you know, any of these third rail claims that can completely remove a person from public life and from the ability to express himself or to defend himself or herself uh, by, by virtue of being banned or being, uh, you know, extensively boycotted. It, it, the, the free speech equation is not what it was in the 60s when Sullivan came down. Now, defamation is, is, is in and of itself a speech restricting um, act because it does because it, it prevents people from being able to defend themselves and in many cases to make a living mm, yeah and and you know we've seen how and you mentioned um, rule 11 in the federal courts and and how um, you know that that is obviously the rule that imposes sanctions and other penalties um, for frivolous lawsuits but um, but a lot of these things aren't frivolous they need to be uh, brought just because we need to have more clarity, and judges are so hesitant to 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 rule on difficult issues, especially when they deem these things political. But as we continue to have such a divided society between the progressive left and the right, we're going to have more things that seem political just because of the nature of the filing, but that doesn't mean that it's inherently a political question in a legal sense. That means that the, right. the, the court doesn't have jurisdiction over the issue. So why are judges so hesitant to do their job? Well, uh, I, I do think there is, a, 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 as I mentioned, a, 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 social, a sociological phenomenon in the judiciary where people were judged. First of all, the quality of, of the judiciary has declined markedly. Uh, you know this from your own experience. Uh, judges uh, look are, are, are interested to. Uh, I mean, look, the, the vast majority of judges are really interested in doing their jobs and doing it effect effectively. But there's very little review of. I mean, appeals are extremely time-consuming, very Expensive. likely uh, to not be successful just structurally. It's extremely. It's an extremely expensive process. And judges don't, I think, you know, feel that they have anything to, to lose. 
I mean, yeah. Many and we'll have to leave it there, about. Ron Coleman. Uh, really appreciate your commentary. I could talk to you about all of this, you know, <laughs> law stuff so much more. Uh, Ron Coleman from Dillon Law will be back tomorrow with more of Jenna Ellis in the morning. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.